1: Greetings and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm your host, Monica Black. As you know, we uh, at New Books in History uh, take it as our job to pick out exciting new, new books that the world needs to know about, and we interview their authors. And today we have the distinct pleasure, I have the distinct pleasure, of talking to William Davenport Mercer about his new book. It's called Diminishing the Bill of Rights, Barron v. Baltimore and the Foundations of American Liberty. It was very recently published at It only appeared uh, just a few weeks ago with University of Oklahoma Press. Uh, Dr. Mercer teaches history and law at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And uh, his book starts off with a seemingly small event long ago, the purchase by John Barron Jr. and John Craig of a wharf in 19th century Baltimore. And then it ends up, the book ends up, that is, Uh, by explaining something very large and very contemporary. That is why Americans today in the 21st century view the Constitution as the source of our rights. That is a very interesting story and beautifully told in this book. And it all starts in the mud at the bottom of the Baltimore Harbor. So thank you, Bill, for being with us today.
0: Well, thanks for having me on. I I appreciate uh, uh, your, your comments on the book. Thank you.
1: Yeah, no, it's a lovely book. I enjoyed reading it so much. It's quite a story, and and um, and really fascinatingly and expressively told. So maybe we can start uh, that way. We can start just by um, I'll ask you, please, to kind of tell us about how you got interested in the subject, and you know what led you to this particular case, and and uh, what was the tra- trajectory of writing the book.
0: Sure, um, the book uh, comes out of of, of obviously the, the case Barron versus Baltimore is one that I remember learning about. Very briefly in law school, it kind of gets kind of passed over rather quickly, um, and and I got more interested in it actually my first semester of, of grad school through a conversation I had with my dissertation advisor, um, and and we were both talking about how it seems like a, a bit of an, an anomaly, um, especially if you know anything about uh, Chief Justice John Marshall's general historical trajectory. Um, it seems like a kind of an, an out-of-place decision. Um, and so uh, as I got to, to, to looking at it more, it was one of those, those fun projects that as you keep digging, you keep kind of thinking, oh, there, no, there, there's more here. Um, and uh, and it, it went from a, a, a short seminar paper uh, over time to, to this book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So tell me, can you tell us a little bit about how, um, what kind of research went into this book?
0: Sure. It, 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 you know, it, it of course starts, starts small and seems to expand out as, as these books often do. Um, I, I, I started, uh, very, very kind of narrowly, um, looking at the case, of course, itself. Um, and then uh, the, the the scholarly literature that was explaining why it was doing what it what it was doing, um, and then from there, kind of looking at it more as a question of of not of of the, maybe the, the narrow issue at hand before the court, but the larger question of of what do Americans think about their rights and where do they think those those, those rights come from, um, and and. And so the sources tended to branch out from there. You know, of course, you have in the court cases and, and, and such. Um, but also, uh, there's, I found a lot of good documents uh, up in in Maryland and, and in D.C., um, uh, the, the Maryland State Archives, where I, I first started out with this. Uh, of course, uh, the uh, uh, the City Archives um, came online a bit later. Uh, I found those to be... Um, really invaluable in that uh, a lot of those documents had been um, really not not terribly cared for until the state got involved and and started funding uh, the city archives so that scholars could could get in there. And I found a a whole host of information on on Baltimore itself to to better place what exactly was happening so that it, 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 it kind of contextualized. What what Baron and Craig were, were actually going through and, and, and what they were up up against. So so mostly uh, we're talking um, the Maryland Historical Society, the Baltimore City Archives, the Maryland State Archives, the Library of Congress, um, even the National Archives. I, I, it, I'm sure you, everyone uh, who, who's done one of these is, has had that piece where they spend an inordinate amount of time running down. One piece of evidence that you know is going to end up being one sentence, but you still spend time doing it. Um, I found a, an old audio recording that was done back in the early 80s that uh, was, was an audio play about famous Supreme Court cases. And amazingly, they had uh, Donna Amici narrate one about Barron versus Baltimore great. And I was like, I have to find this. And uh, fortunately, I went up to the the College Park branch and kind of pigeonholed the guy who was really nice enough to say, well, look, we don't have it today, but I know you travel, I'll I'll mail it to you. And he did. And I think it it ended up being one sentence, but still uh, very very satisfying.
1: I'm sure it was a very important sentence too. (laughs) It
0: was a great sentence.
1: No, all <laughs> historians, every historian who's listening right now is thinking, yes, yes. I know exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> um, whether you work in archives or in manuscripts or in some other, uh, some other uh, um, sources, uh, everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. Well, let us fill us in a little bit for the uninitiated. I am no longer uninitiated having read your book, but for the uninitiated, what exactly was the case? I mean, what, who was Barron? Who was Craig? Why a wharf? Why Baltimore? Um, kind of give us the story.
0: Sure, sure. the um, the 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 story here is is, is as follows. I mean, you, have, you have you have two guys in uh, early early eighteen hundreds. We're talking right after the War of, of eighteen twelve, right on the heels of the War of eighteen twelve. John Barron Jr. Uh, and his business partner John Craig by this wharf in, in, in Fell's Point. Now, if you, if you haven't been to, to Baltimore, Fell's Point is approximately. Uh, uh, one mile east of downtown. The significance of that is that the, 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 the Patapsco, the harbor, dead ends into to downtown Baltimore. Uh, today that would be downtown and you know, where the Orioles play and such. Fell's um, point is interesting because it's one mile uh, farther up the river, meaning that ships that need to come into Baltimore to load and unload uh, have much less of a time dealing with a a, a narrow harbor that's choked up by sand and, and, and silt, uh, which in Baltimore, given its 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 elevations, is is a constant problem for this really rapidly growing place. And so they buy this they buy this this wharf, and uh, uh, very quickly things really don't uh, don't go well for them. <laughs> Um, you know they, they 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 buy it. Of course they they're not they're not terribly rich people. Um, they buy it on a note. You know they have a the number of payments that they have to make from the, the guy they bought it from, and and things rapidly seem to seem to fall fall apart for them. They make the first payment okay, um, but uh, Baltimore itself seems to, in many cases, overextend what. They thought the post-war prosperity was going, going to be, um, and, and Barron and Craig are kind of, kind of part of that. I mean, there's a, a, a fever outbreak that, that occurs right in their, their, um, their neighborhood. Um, there's a, a freezing, um, but, but more importantly, there is the sense that Baltimore, as you know, the third largest city in the country, uh, it needs to get its act together. And and in many ways, Baltimore and Craig feel that they've been sacrificed on the altar of progress, so to speak. Um, the, the city recognizes that the, uh, uh, the way of doing business, in Fulton's point, has to change. And, and when I say way of doing business, it, the idea of allowing streams to just run through the middle of of, 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 of Fell's Point can't work. I mean, if you even look at old maps, there, there are places. One of them is called the Brick Pond, which is just a, essentially a retention pond that just springs up on one of the blocks. Um, you know, muddy streets, uh, uh, carriages. Uh, people trying to walk through these, animal excrement, the silt coming down from the hills, it's kind of a disgusting, nasty mess. And so from the time that, that Baron and Craig have, have bought this place, the city takes these measures to try to clean up Fells Point. They, they cut uh, street, they make dams, they make embankments. And the long and the short of it, to kind of to wrap this up, uh, long and the short of it is the city finally takes all the water that's pouring through Fells Point and redirects it so it empties into the harbor at one spot. The problem is, is that one spot is directly north of their wharf. This of course, you know, the water not just being clean water, but water running through Fells Point is carrying everything with it, so it raises the level of the seafloor around their wharf uh, making it harder and harder for them to dock the the big ships, and when you own a wharf, uh, you make money off of rent. Or wharfage is what they would call it. Um, and so they they no longer have the ability to dock these big ships, and 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 ultimately end up um, uh, losing the wharf because. Of it.
1: Yeah, it's a very it's a very. Uh, these guys had a lot. One of the things that comes through your book very clearly is how much bad luck these guys had.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. They, they, they when, even little things like the fever outbreak. I saw this and go, oh, you got to be kidding me. These guys just they just can't catch a break.
1: They could not catch a break. And and I think that piece of context that about the about the the outbreak is 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 very interesting and maybe not something that every historian would have picked up on. So I thought that I found that very I mean maybe that's maybe that's always been a part of the story, but I thought that your, the way that you highlighted it was particularly interesting. Um, not just because these guys, it, it, it becomes actually kind of comic how many pieces of bad luck fall in their laps over and over again. But also, I mean, as a historical fact, um, I th- anyway, I thought that was very interesting. Could you tell us now a little bit about, we, now we have a sense of the story, at least the beginning of the story. Um, we know more about the mud of Baltimore. Is there anything else about Baltimore that we need to know to sort of understand the way the story develops further? Sure, sure. I mean,
0: one, one of the other things to think about with this, and, and, and I, found, I found the Baltimore City Archives really helpful in, in, in this regard, um, the sense that what's taking place in, in Fell's Point and, and the story of, of Barron and Craig kind of uh, feeling they're getting, getting worked over by the city is, is, is by no means unique. And in fact, when they sued, the, uh, you had two other wharf owners um, right next to them who, who hired the same attorneys and sued at the same time. Um, you've got uh, the city that's kind of trying to to, to, to get up to speed, um, and they seem to be trying to get up to speed all at once, and people are really freaking out about this. Um, uh, if you think about Baltimore, I mean, it, it's, it's almost like it blinked itself into existence. I mean, it's really it's really kind of coming out of nowhere. Um uh, you see the same crises happening downtown, where they're trying to straighten the wharves, they're trying to extend roads, and you have you have these these, these battles in the, in the newspapers, for example, that are almost reminiscent of, of revolutionary era dialogue. You know, people uh, using um, fake names, uh, Civitas and Publius and, 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 and such, to, to to write anonymous letters to the to the editor. Uh, the editors who, who plead with the public for more time because they, they can't publish all of these over who should bear the brunt of, 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 of these costs. You know, I mean, who, who pays for it? So, so, for example, you want to extend a, a, a street downtown. Uh, who, who pays for that? Should the people in Fells Point have to pay for that? Uh, they don't live downtown. You know, what kind of city is this, is this going to be? Um, their their charges of, of corruption um, rampant, and so so what I tried to do in the book is is to try to kind of take take the Baron story uh, away from what we would most commonly know it as as a, as a Supreme Court story, and say look the Supreme Court story is almost just the, the very end of this. This this tells us something much bigger about about growth uh, in in. in in cities like Baltimore in this era that are all dealing with, you know, what's the best way forward and who has to pay the cost and what, what's the role of law in this and how is the role of law changing to, to accommodate these, these developments?
1: Yeah. I mean, these are actually issues that we still deal with now to, to one extent or another. They haven't necessarily gone away.
0: No, no 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 absolutely not no no i mean you see this you know the, the takings jurisprudence while well, the fifth amendment and and the, the obligation to pay for 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 uh, uh takings of private property has long since been held uh as as applying to the states that by no means uh means that the the problem has, has gone away. It's just, you've got inverse condemnation, you've got regulatory takings and there's a say amongst lawyers, a very healthy business still, still <laughs> thriving among all that. that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, how does it go then from being um, this sort of local story in many ways, very local story to being a much bigger story that extends even into our own time. So how does it, I mean, to begin with, how does it become a constitutional issue?
0: Sure. Sure. Um, the, the short answer is very slowly, but it gets going, right? Um, here, here's the, kind of the, the, the timeline here. By, um, by 1822, they, they filed suit. Now, it's important to understand that these guys have, and um, you know, they've lost their, their wharf. They are in no business to be funding litigation. And they have a, kind of a, erstwhile benefactor, a man by the name of Luke Tiernan, who, not only kind of steps in to give John Craig uh, uh, advances from time to time to try to keep him afloat, but ultimately um, tries to negotiate with the purchaser, uh, or excuse me, the seller of the, the wharf for more time. Um, and uh, when the the, the the wharf is sold out from under him, they lose the the, the lawsuit. The seller sues them for unpaid monies. Um, it gets sold, and, and, and Luke Tiernan buys the thing. Uh, and so there's no question that, that Tiernan is the one that's really funding all of this, largely as, I think, a speculative venture in order to make some of his money back. Um, uh, Barron and Craig are, are, are from then on really kind of, I think, parties in need only. Um, he, hires, he hires good attorneys. He gets a good local guy, Charles Meyer, to, to, to bring the case. Uh, files in 1822 and, and, and to show that not much in the legal profession has changed with respect to uh, uh you know, the, the brevity of of, of, our, of our lawsuits uh, it doesn't go to trial until 1828 um but what's interesting is is it, there's a and again this is kind of goes back to what i said earlier that the more you kind of kept looking at this case the more interesting it got so so who, who ends up getting 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 pulled in so charles myers a good local attorney um they also then bring in David Hoffman, who in legal circles is notorious or known for being one of the first legal educators in the country. And when I say legal educator, I mean someone who's doing it in kind of a, like a school setting by teaching kind of classic readings, as opposed to the old uh, apprentice model where you read Blackstone and copy motions. And so he comes in for, for Barron and Craig uh, on, on the city. You've got uh John Scott, as the city's uh, solicitor, which is fine and good, but as they get closer to trial, they bring in a a, a very uh, well-regarded Baltimore attorney by the name of Roger Tawney, of course, who becomes John Marshall's successor as chief justice of the Supreme Court, uh, also infamously known as the author of the Dred Scott decision. So he makes his his appearance. Uh, So you can see things are starting to get more serious here. Uh, finally goes to trial in 1828. Um, uh, Craig dies shortly before trial. Barron dies shortly after trial. Uh, but what's interesting is they win. Uh, the case is, is successful. They get damages. Um, the problem, though, is that's not the end of it. Uh, the city uh, appeals the judgment. They go to the Maryland Supreme Court of the known as the Court of Appeals. And uh, ultimately, the city gets a reversal. Uh, Where this becomes bigger as a matter of law, kind of nationwide, and and for our purposes, is that uh, Barron and Craig's attorneys then decide we need to get this into the Supreme Court. Um, John Marshall signs this uh, and, and, and wants the case. And I argue that by the time it, in between the time that he signs uh, the, the the writ of error, the thing that gets into the Supreme Court, and the time that the case actually gets heard, that some pretty significant things have happened that uh, make a decision in favor of Barron and Cray really uh, not possible from his perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. So before we get to sort of the decision and the importance of the decision, let's back up for just a second and... And and, and and I'll ask you to to kind of explain to us how Americans in the early Republic thought about their rights and where their rights came from, and it's probably going to be helpful to most people like me who 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 aren't specialists to understand how differently people conceived of the source of their rights in in the period that you're looking at as opposed to the way that we conceive of them now
0: yeah yeah the 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 um, the, the interesting thing you find about. Americans and say the early republics, or you know, early early 1800s, uh, is that there's no uniform consensus. If someone said, "If you have a right to do something," well, where does it come from? You know, like I, I mentioned this in the book. You know, in, in modern parlance, you know, we say we say right all the time. There's a right to this. There's a right to that. I mean, we throw it around so much, it's almost considered elemental. Like we don't we don't even examine what we mean by the term um uh, americans in the in the early republic era had a, had a pretty rich kind of palette to, to choose from if they were trying to figure out where their where their rights came from um, i argue that, that by the by the early 1800s you, you generally have kind of a winnowing down into a couple of different categories um, you have rights as, as provided for by the common law which I think is, is, is still the biggest category um, and when I say common law of course I'm speaking of, of, uh, of, of going back to, to English case law um, the term comes from um, uh, uh, when, when the courts in England uh, specifically the royal courts were trying to produce uh, a brand of justice that would help um, kind of the authority of of the crown. Uh, You had numbers of courts, manorial courts, ecclesiastical courts, for example, that all had limited jurisdiction. But by sending out the the king's uh, judges to ride circuit, uh, they could create a brand of law that would be common to the realm as opposed to limited jurisdiction courts, like manorial courts, for example. And so that's that's considered uh, uh, by Americans in, in in one strain of thought is very much their their birthright. You know, you see in in, in the colonies, um, in in their, their their charters, for example, that 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 they uh, are entitled to the, the rights of Englishmen. They say the rights of Englishmen. They're they're, they're speaking of things like the, the common law. Um, you think of something. Uh, the, the Magna Carta of 1215, for example, as, as a centerpiece of, of the Magna of, of, of the common law. Um, one of those centerpiece provisions was the, the right that no man should be deceased of, of his property uh, except by uh, law of the land, which of course, you know, uh, we see a version of in the fifth amendment that doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, uh, and so, by the time you get to the early 1800s, that, of course, is 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 still is still is still kicking around as your rights are 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 common law rights, uh, are, are customary rights, and judges simply enunciate those those customs. It's it's inherently conservative; takes a long time to change. Um, but that's that's a that's a big part of it. Um, I think you also see uh, another strain of thought. You see. Um, Americans talking about the rights as existing either by natural law or natural right the, the <laughs> contours of the overlap between those two are always a kind of a source of, of, of consternation for, for for academics I try not to get too too caught up in in, in that debate but try to think that you, you have rights as existing uh, somewhere you know way Nature, um, you, you can kind of consider it as, as being moored either to kind of uh, the her- heritage of, of rights as, as, you know, by, by de- the divine in some way. Uh, you could also consider it, uh, and many of them did, you know, an outgrowth of, of the rise of international law. Uh, especially in the 1600s, um, where people are trying to create law, but internationally, you don't have one sovereign you can just attach it to. So you have this idea of trying to create these these broader natural rights, things that you kind of today see in more of like a human rights context um and so you see that, that 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 shot through a lot of 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 case law and legal opinions as well i think a, a third a third source of rights that i think has, has kind of winnowed down in, in, into the 1800s or early 1800s is is rights as as positive law enactments or, or right you know a positive law essentially uh, actions by uh, uh like legislatures for example you know statutes. You know statutes would be positive law, um, and and you start to see that that's that's um, that's coming online as, as well. And I think in many cases it's an outgrowth of the the American constitutions that are being that are being written that are uh, you know declaring rights. But over time, I think it's a pretty short step to starting to look at those same documents as the fountain. Of, of, of rights. Um, this, this rights as positive law enactment, I argue is, 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 how, is how Marshall looks at it in Barron. And then the last category, uh, is one of those maddening things for historians. Cause not everything fits in a neat little box, uh, people blending it. You know, you'd see two, three of these in, in say like a same judicial opinion, um, uh, where they're, they're just kind of all over the map. Um, but point being is, uh, for rights to matter in this era, they don't have to be tethered to any sort of written document. Um, that's that I find that that's the minority view, though. Today, no lawyer is going to walk into court and claim a right and not have some kind of document that they can enter into evidence and show the judge.
1: So interesting. So how do we how do we get from a place where the sources of rights were many and they could be used in various combinations? Uh, the sources that is, could, could, uh, um, rights could be seen as, as being generated by multiple sources in some cases. How do you get from that situation to the situation that we have now, where we see our rights as somehow emanating from the constitution? And what was the role of Baron v. Baltimore and the Supreme court in that, in that change?
0: Well, I, I think it's a it's a it's a slow transformation, you know. Like Baron, is interesting in that, like we have this sense, and, and especially we you know today, like we're, I mean, like get online and think of the tea leaves that are being written about Neil Gorsuch right now. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, just the the speculation, and we're hanging on every word. Now, what kind of breakfast cereal does does Kagan eat? You know, and will that tip something? Um but but think about that I mean, so so I looked at the newspapers that that had the you know the, the reporting for the Supreme Court and they you know first of all the Supreme Court is not really the Supreme Court like we think of it today, it was in the basement of the Senate. Um there were much bigger things happening in the union at the time, and the newspapers that were report, reporting the Barron case. Would give no one any indication as to the the magnitude of the issue before the court. So you don't see you don't see state courts actually citing Marshall's opinion for years. Um, in fact, the the trial court's decision was published in a, a, a magazine called the American Jurist, and that gets cited for decades, and it tends to get cited more than than what Marshall wrote. But what's interesting, though. Is that over time, the Barron decision becomes like an article of faith. So by the by the end of the century, you have courts um, that are talking about Barron as if that's the way it's always been. And anyone who would ever question it just must be out of their mind. You know, uh, you know just, just uh, how how could that how could that possibly happen? Uh, the best analogy I could probably give. is a, a line from a rock song says, I've drank enough whiskey to turn a battleship around. Now, that's a mixed metaphor. Um, But, but, you know, when do people start thinking of their rights differently? It's like turning a battleship around. You know, Barron did not, you know, I want to make it clear that Barron wasn't the thing that did it. But Barron was a step in it. And Barron is important because we then can look back at it and say, well, this is – uh, uh, this is the Supreme Court and we can look back at it with our, our, our kind of, you know, we think of the Supreme Court as everything and say, oh, then, then see, look, it's always been like this and, 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 uh, it's not, but it was an essential piece in kind of getting us to, to where we are today.
1: Yeah. You know, um, I've heard, it may not be true, but I have heard that, um, you figure out a way to get barren into almost every class that you teach somehow.
0: (laughs) That's kind of true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, If you take one of my classes, you probably have to hear that word at least once. You're
1: going to know something about it when you're down. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully
0: I can stop doing that at some (laughs) point.
1: So when you, when you teach it to students, when you're talking about it, what, what if you, you know, if you, if you have a room full of undergraduate students or maybe a room full of law students, what, what is your, What's the thing that you tell them if, if they didn't know anything else when they left the room that they would know one thing about Barron? What, what is it? What's the takeaway?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the takeaway is is we have to appreciate that, that the way we think of rights today um, is not the way we've always thought of rights. And, 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 and that's important because I think if you consider, for example, the Constitution as the thing – that grants your rights or, or, or maybe to be more charitable, if we're a right to matter, it has to be in the constitution. And then that explains a lot about the, you know, the, the Kagan breakfast cereal analogy. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, 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 it forces us to really strange ends. You know, the one I, I talk about this in the book. like anyone who's ever had to read the birth control uh, case Griswold versus Connecticut 1965 there's a there's a, a, a case of the law in, in Connecticut that outlawed birth control and it's the Warren court it's the 60s um, you know where the, the the legal community is ready to do away with this as a relic it, it's it's, it's just uncommonly so well, the problem, though, is you read the Constitution, and the words "right to privacy" don't exist anywhere in it, and so you've got this really weird conundrum. Everyone recognizes that privacy is something that we value, and that this Connecticut law needs to go away. But if you consider that it has to be in the Constitution to matter, and then you read the decision, and the the the, the majority comes up with this kind of uh, odd a number as well it's not in there but if you read if you take the first and you take the third and you take the fourth amendment the fifth amendment and you put them all together and you can read that in the interlocking shadows the right to privacy exists and 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 you're like on one hand you're like no i want the right of privacy it exists i want this law to go away this needs to be there but on the other hand if you kind of take it dispassionately and look at a decision like that you realize that's seems like kind of silly reasoning and i think that i think that's the reason why baron matters. You know, a right to privacy existed as a matter of, of, of the common law. Um, but if the constitution is where it all, it all kind of begins and ends, you got all of us trying to pour everything into a document, a document that wasn't, you know, well, like we're, we're all looking for answers in the document that wasn't designed to give us all these answers. It was designed to do very specific things to solve very specific problems in the 1780s, um, and uh, we're, we're we're making it do everything. And by kind of making it do everything, I think you have you have certain kind of it's costs.
1: Yeah, and then you're back to the tea leaves.
0: Back to the tea leaves, which is uh, never never a good sense, yeah
1: no it, it usually isn't a good thing that's exactly right well um we've you, you know you've given us a lot of time, but I hope you'll just answer a couple more questions Of course um, one thing i wondered wondered about was what you're working on next are you are you working on something related to the early republic legal history or what, what what sorts of projects have you got going?
0: on? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. I, I'm I've got a couple of different projects happening right now. Um, I'm I'm kind of interested in in figuring out ways that I can tell legal stories through through in kind of traditionally non legal sources. Mm. Um, you know, like especially if you do constitutional uh, history. Um, generally, we've all been hashing through most of the same stuff for a long time, you know, and in, 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 I, I find intellectually I'd like to be able to move, move move my stuff in a, in a slightly different direction. So, um, so for example, I'm, I'm uh, just finished this piece about a, a trial that took place in Knoxville um, that is kind of horrific in a number of ways. Uh, but the, the piece that I think is interesting is that I found a, lost ballad that memorialized the event that was recorded 50 years later and and I argued that both the ballad and the, the trial were uh, were performances um, and so trying to puncture this idea that there's certain things that are um, are legal and official uh, like trials and that there's other things that simply reflect official official uh, things like, like you know, the arts or music. And I think if we, if we position these differently, I think you can bring all of these pieces of evidence up on up, onto the same plane. Um, so I'm working on that. I'm also in the, the very beginning stages of a, of a co-authored project with a colleague of mine at the University of Florida um, about uh, blue laws and stand-up comedy. Um, but where we're hitting this and where, where I'm, I'm having a lot of fun looking at it is that we're not doing the... the you know, Lenny Bruce, uh, George Carlin, Richard P- Pryor stuff. Though you know, as great as that is, um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out how was comedy done in the late 1800s. Uh, you know, like so, so. if you don't have the the proverbial brick wall and the smoky comedy club, where did you do comedy? And how did you do comedy? And what were the restrictions on your speech in comedy? And, and to that, you got to go into vaudeville, and you got go to go into burlesque, and you got to go into the concert saloons. And what I'm finding is that that, that, that speech restrictions are not necessarily just uh, you know governmental things, but speech restrictions are 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 are, are market driven. Um, they're you know the desire to clean up the theaters and make more money. Um, you know, if, if not, you'll get a you know, I mean, you get a, a, a note in a blue envelope, you know, and you can't work blue. You know, so um, so that, that's what I'm working on right now.
1: It's very interesting. I had no idea that the blue laws, you know, extended into, back into the 19th century. I mean, that's just my ignorance talking, but, but that's just absolutely fascinating.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, learning, a, I'm learning a whole lot myself. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty great stuff. So hopefully it'll, I'm hoping it comes together.
1: If you can make your scholarly life connect with things like burlesque shows uh, and blue laws and and um, and Richard Pryor, then you're 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 bound to be doing something right.
0: Absolutely, I, I did one part just as a, a bit of an intro, and I legitimately got to uh, read a book about Bill Hicks, and that was for work, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was fantastic. It was like a like the stars were aligning, I'm working and reading uh, old Bill Hicks material, which is uh, which is fantastic.
1: That is fantastic. Uh, one other thing I happen to know about you, just by the way, is that you is that you're a guitar player, and I wonder if you would, um, I wonder if you would maybe uh, tell us now that now that your book is done, how playing a guitar solo is not the same as writing a historical monograph. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would say they're they're pretty different. Because um, uh, unless you're in like a, a prog rock or uh, some kind of a like crunchy jam band, which uh, I, I am not, fortunately, um, you only got a couple of bars to burn it. And um, whereas a historical monograph, oh my, it just goes on forever.
1: It know, is a lengthy undertaking.
0: <laughs> it's like they're never they're, they're 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 never done. They're just finished. You know, uh, uh, you know, I could, you know, uh, unfortunately, I think my students don't want to hear about it anymore. But I, I still feel like you know, if you want to, you could probably jump in and 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 keep looking at at this, at this sort of stuff. But um, no, I, I would say they're 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 different in that way. But uh, in some respects, I, I will say. Um, They're both very creative. You know, you you always want to try to do something that's interesting. You want to do something that that isn't just a cop of what everyone else has done. And at the the end of the day, you hope people don't throw stuff at you when you're finished.
1: That's exactly right. Well, we've just had a tremendously interesting and and engaging and funny conversation with William Davenport Mercer, uh, who teaches history and law at the University of Tennessee. His book is called Diminishing the Bill of Rights, Baron versus Baltimore, and the Foundations of American Liberty, very recently published by University of Oklahoma Press. I, I urge you to pick it up and read it. I urge you to, to find a copy and, and learn something new, I think, fascinating about um, American history and the, the way that we came to our, our contemporary understanding of, of the source of our rights and learn some really interesting things about the city of Baltimore. I'll say that too. So thank you very much, Bill. And, uh, thank you for your time. Hey,
0: th- thanks. Thanks a lot for, for having me on. I, I, I really appreciate it. And, and I hope, uh, people that listen to it, uh, like, like the book, uh, uh, and, uh, as well. Um, I will say there's, there's a lot, of course, we can't, we can't get to in this, but if you, if you are interested, not only is John Marshall making appearance, but, uh, Andrew Jackson is here. Uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole host of characters. Uh, John C. Calhoun threatening to, to tear apart the Union is there. There's a, there's a whole bunch of really interesting things that, that I had a lot of fun kind of discovering and, and, and talking about. And so if anyone happens to pick it up, uh, I, I appreciate you checking it out. And, I, and I, I really hope you enjoy it.
1: Thank you, Bill.